Hello, and welcome to the Interrupters House podcast. Today I'm talking with Maya Elsner, whose collection or pamphlet is on the cusp. Collection. <laughs> Overrun by wild boars. And I'm stealing from the blurb, um, sifts through the wreckage of history and attempts to grasp what is precious, what is worth clinging on to, and what it means to survive. Um, Overrun by Wild Boars was published by Flipped Eye earlier this year. Maya, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I wondered if we could start at the beginning and have a reading of Cochineal Wings. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Cochineal. Cochineal. Sure, of course. Um, so this Always is awkward like... to run a podcast when you've never pronounced a word before. <laughs> they're amazing. I don't know whether you've seen them, but they're kind of really extraordinary insects. Um, um, are they related to the butterflies? So they um, they are separate. They're, they're these insects okay. that kind of um, eat the cactus um, that you have commonly in Mexico, but they're grey. And oh, when wow. you crush them, they make this incredible red um, uh, colour. And they were kind of um, uh, used to dye wool before we had kind of acrylics. So that kind of very, wow. very strong red colour, I think. I mean, I think this is all acrylics behind me. I think you can see me on Zoom, but um, yeah. but yeah, it's just a, it's it's like a very amazing act of transformation where grey becomes this kind of extraordinary colour. Um, so yeah, wow. Um, but yes, very happy to read. Um, Cochineal wings. One. Today I'm four and go to market with my mother. She buys lilies for the imaginary pool I colour in, cuts grapefruit peel into boats, unzips the coat of each segment and lays them down, naked bodies on floating rafts. Waxy limbs protect us from sinking, how skin survives a boat ride. Two. Tonight I read about monarch butterflies flying south each year, 3,000 miles from Canada to Mexico, from milkweed to wildflower. Not one completes the journey. America is full of gossamer carcasses flitting between falling bullets. There is nothing of butterfly in my mother. I stop believing in symbols. Three. Lately, I'm concerned by wings. A week after my grandmother dies, I dream her head emerges from my own womb, ashen, except its lips on which a tattooed starling is fixed in cochineal, insect wings ground up for paste. Later, I begin EMDR treatment. I am cold as a fish memory of the time it takes to cross the Atlantic twice and end up right where I started, with a woman yelling, go back to where you come from her words purpling the dusk. Thank you. I um, I had a couple of pre-prepared questions, but it's really hard to avoid the quite obvious racism of go back to where you come from in the, in the last play, in the last sort of few lines. I'm wondering which side of the Atlantic or both sides of the Atlantic that was. Yeah, that was in the UK. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Um, so I was going to ask about this much later on in the book, mm -hmm. but seeing as I've already broached it, yeah. I wanted to ask you about anti-Semitism in the UK. Having just come to America myself, I sort of started to notice, um, the weird, like, 
undercurrent of anti-Semitism in the UK a lot more. Mm. Um, and how, um, I mean, for starters, just how much more vibrant Jewish culture is almost allowed to be in American cities. Like I've experienced mm. so much more of it since coming to America. Mm. I wonder if that correlates with your experience or, um, yeah, that's really sure what my question was that's... there to be fair. <laughs> No, that's that. It's an interesting question. Um, I think that um, I didn't really kind of grow up um, in a very Jewish context, um, and uh, I think there was definitely uh, because I think for my for my grand for, for my grandparents, both of them um, lived the war in hiding in Poland, so they didn't. They only got out after the war, so it's kind of a very specific refugee experience. Um, just because kind of ninety percent of the Polish Jewish population died, um, so um, I guess the majority of refugees managed to get you know managed to escape before the war happened. Um, they really lived their lives in London, um, very much uh, kind of still in hiding. You know, they. Um, right had a fortress in London in a way so so even though my dad kind of um grew was born in London grew up in London um his family kind of house was was really still in occupied Poland with kind of bars on the window and padlocks on the door and all the rest of it and they were really hiding what it meant to be Jewish so I think um and that that was kind of something that I also a little bit grew up with um so I, I would definitely agree um, that I, I think there are some places in London where um, kind of there are there is a you know a big vibrant Jewish culture, but it wasn't um, around me when I grew up. Um, I think, as I said specifically, because of this kind of um, uh, particular history where my grandfather kind of lived in the forest in hiding, and my grandmother was on her own in a room for the whole time. Right. Um, so, yeah, um, I think in the US, obviously, yeah, it's kind of a different, slightly different conversation um, in terms of anti-Semitism within institutions and the way. It kind yes. Of yeah, no, I wasn't to imply that there's no anti-Semitism <laughs> in America. There definitely is. I, I It was more that um, I find or I've started to notice like anti-Semitism is this weird snide um, sort of turning your nose up at people in the UK. Yeah. And also this odd delusion that it's not there because of being on the right side of the war and then being on the right side of the war ends up erasing jewish people from their own history in a strange yeah. way yeah um, yeah i'll get off my soapbox now <laughs> <laughs> i have cogent questions for future poems no it's um, interesting i didn't i haven't i haven't um kind of been asked that question before so that so it's interesting to consider yeah i mean it's also obviously coming from my own education yeah. And they don't particularly want to censor that. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to um, ask you a slightly change tone a bit and ask you about the butterflies in the poem, because I yeah. wondered if it's true that they don't make the journey. If it's true that they don't make the journey. I mean, they yeah. do. They make this incredible migration. Um, and um, but yeah, I, don't, I think it. Um, you know, as far as I know, the, the it's kind of multiple generations that continue making the journey. Right. Um, but they, they survive it. They survive it, not all of them. Okay. <laughs> and okay. I think with kind of global warming, um, you know, so much is at risk and the monarch butterflies are kind of really at risk. Um, so I think this book, a lot of it is kind yeah, of yeah. interested in all the insect life, um, which is really, really in danger at the moment. I think it's something kind of crazy, like 50% um, of in insect li life um, is really at danger in the moment, <laughs> at the moment. If kind of Yeah, it's also something that... Um... 
and I'm a little bit guilty of this myself mm -hmm. um, and in my own practice of writing I'm much quicker to write about seals or something yeah. cute like mammal life than I am about insects because insects are often inconvenient in some way or yeah you know the creepy crawlies um, yeah definitely I think um uh Fiona Benson has a great book out called bioluminescent baby yeah I've I've read it yesterday I really well, yeah started. yeah um it's all um, about those I was gonna ask unpleasant. but I didn't want to do those yeah no, I don't want to do those awkward like oh have you read and then yeah no, no I definitely recommend there's a great one on um on mosquitoes um yeah. so the the attention to those insects that are maybe less palatable than butterflies <laughs> yeah um and also shout out to Guillemot Press as well because it's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful book um so I guess this is tangentially related to my first less planned question which was um at the end of part two mm -hmm. you say I stopped believing in symbols mm. which I thought was a really fascinating way to um to begin a poetry collection it reminded me of Adorno um and the um to write poetry is barbaric after Auschwitz mm. one of the things that struck me as I then went through the rest of the collection was um you still use symbols almost uh, necessity because it's the language that we're given as poets by mm. large. so I wondered I guess how absolute is the lack of belief in symbols is it something that's grappled with in your work is it mm. uh, tongue-in-cheek and you do actually believe in symbols or is it a you know full-on I, I don't believe in symbols but I have to use them it's what I've been handed yeah that's a really interesting question I guess um there is a, I, I, I think I'm really interested in complicity. Um, so perhaps less so in terms, you know, maybe it's less about believing or not believing, but also um, more kind of inter interrogating how we are, um, how I am as a, as a writer, but I guess how we all are bound by certain structures. Um, so symbols are one of them and how we also participate in those structures. Um, and so I think I also I always do think about kind of what is it to reduce an experience to a metaphor, for instance? What are the ethics and what are the limits of those things? Um, what are the limits of um, simile um, and the, and also its possibilities? And I guess in terms of thinking maybe about metaphor, um, how it's a literal, you know, transporting you somewhere else. Um, and I guess, what does that mean when when writing about migration, which is a kind of parallel, you know, what are the problems um, when you make an experience that is kind of so vast and so complicated and also so ever changing when you when you um, kind of conjure it with something with a symbol I guess um so it's not to say that I don't like that but I think I am interested in um the ethics of if those things and I think you know maybe in this in this um this book is very interested in kind of objects and dislocated objects um and I guess how objects come to signify um different things in different contexts um and and what what do we as people how do we attach meaning to those objects also which i think is kind of part of the same thing um of kind of how do we navigate our lives via symbols reading each other um reading in sometimes problematic ways right um, um and also reading ourselves like how do we reduce ourselves also to symbols um and what are the problems of that also um 
so yeah I think I think maybe that is kind of it is a concern definitely in the book um yeah <laughs> and definitely yeah. I think you know um at the towards the end there are these quite there are these poems about museums and I think partly um it's interested in exactly that how 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 huge um, and violent um, moments in history or kind of um, structures um, are reduced <laughs> to these little things, I guess. Yeah. Um, and also something that struck me as the collection went on um, in particular um, in Why Did We Kill Jesus, I think, um, also, once you sim- once you once you take something as a symbol, you then get this weird commodification of symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that poem in particular, there's the sort of the tourism of suffering in Auschwitz as well, which I um, yeah I thought you did a really fantastic job of bringing to light. Actually, um, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like the where does the symbol sort of begin and end when you have a subject that's so sort of vast that you can't talk about it without some kind of metaphor without some kind of parallel to you know illustrate what you mean it's kind of of a basic tenet like that I guess I mean I guess the more more difficult bit is then where do you end that and yeah um, and obviously the curation of various metaphors yeah totally I mean I think I was also really interested in kind of um how repetition um is not only making something, it's not only kind of a return, but it can also be a transformation through um, kind of creating a, almost a dialogue with the past or looking back to the past. And so I'm also thinking about kind of how um, symbols can transform um, and can take on different meanings. And that can be something that, um, you know, thinking about kind of rebirth is is one is kind of I don't know something that this book is really interested in, also of just renewal and and how um, return to certain images can actually be a way almost of moving outside them, also um, of of transforming them. Yeah, and um, this is a good segue, perhaps, into um, another of your poems because one of the really interesting ways where you with which you use to. Um, to sort of chart that process of renewal, that kind of cyclical aspect um, mm. is using the sestina, which yeah. is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and they're really precise sestinas as well. I'm incredibly jealous as someone who's only ever written failed sestinas <laughs> and tried to pass them off somehow. Um, so on that note, I wondered if you'd be up for reading Elegy to the Howler Monkeys. Sure, of course. Um... Yeah, I actually, um, I kind of, um, yeah, I really fell in love with the Sestina for this book. <laughs> um, so as as you can imagine, but I think um, in terms of thinking around memory, um, it was really helpful in terms of kind of um, thinking about, um, yeah, transformation, basically. So I think it's kind of a fun form for that, even though people often think it's just kind of repetition. Um Elegy to the Howler Monkeys. It's not just repetition, it's really hard. People (laughs) who say a sustainer is just repetition are wrong. (laughs) Elegy to the Howler Monkeys. Their shrieks stab the heart of the undergrowth. My cousin calls me Changita, little monkey, chucks me up, his branch arms sprawled as I hang upside down. I leap from tree to tree, his friends welcoming me in. 
sharp embrace. I am only 15 in the dark when you find me, toss me, fish and bait. Later in the 19th century library, I read Fanny Hill is bait for an old man. Walking to my dorm, undergrowth of nettles and thorns, no dock leaf, I am stung, 15 sores spread red between my thighs. The monkeys watch. Berger writes that women and women friends spectate themselves aware of being seen. I hang half out the window, wind through my hair, hang on till I feel something. A boy sniggers. I take the bait, start another speech about feminism. My friend says the history of sex is a very small undergrowth of fully consensual encounters. Usually one monkey initiates once more and the other bears it. At 15, I don't say much or anything very well. 15 is a time of miracles I don't remember. I hang from the boat sails of my sheets, my cotton monkey climbing clouds. A pterodactyl's on my wall, bait for the meteorite I keep from wrecking. Undergrowth keeps growing, no bridge of the cliff. My friends, imaginary giraffe and ghost moth. The borders of friendship are contrails of smoke. At dusk, I return to 15 in the party. The bonfire burns into the undergrowth. You were my friend and I trusted you. I hang my letters on sharp rocks. Syllables break and I am bait, ums and silences. Inevitably, I retreat to theory. Monkey at typewriter, turn in my coursework, play monkey for grown-ups, talk Marxism, discuss with friends the problems with university politics. I am bait for a polite disagreement, but inside I am still 15 and I simmer, obsess over every touch. I am hung up on detail, wade through the footnote undergrowth of memory, bait the monkey, follow it to the edge until the undergrowth thins and there's a clearing of friends. I am not 15. I am the hangman haunting the bridge. Thank you. One of the things that struck me about the last line um, uh, and I don't know if this is a um, perhaps a more idiosyncratic reading, but the idea of trauma aging you before your time—that was that was how I read that last line. Is that mm. is that right? Um, yeah, I would never really want good. to say what was right or not right. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Um, the podcast is really just my selfish way of asking writers I like if I've read it okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure. Yeah, and definitely I think that was in play. Um, exactly. And um, we, we sort of spoke about this already, but um, the, the trauma sort of um, almost like renews itself in more and more particular ways and what starts mm -hmm. as um as the sort of the traumatic act the assault becomes sort of then infuses relationships in the future whether it be conversations with friends over a dinner table or um or romantic relationships and you have the same power dynamics at play almost with i'm bait for a polite disagreement which i just thought was a really fascinating way of utilizing the form and the repetition mm. um because it's almost a um it's a repetition of the theme as much as anything in completely different contexts 
which yeah. means that the form the form just constantly feels new to me you know I'm never really feeling like it's a, like going oh that's a sestina mm. because the context is so radically altered with each stanza mm. yeah I'm glad I think I was really interested in um kind of uh exploring stuckness um because I think that that often is how um kind of trauma operates but also um we know that kind of each new trauma triggers the last so there is this kind right. of replicative effect I think that the sestina is just really um good for that um in terms of almost enabling um and I think the other thing is that uh something happens when you have kind of all these lines the same length someone talks about I can't remember exactly which writer but I know Mimi Calvati has talked about this about how the sestina is like someone um banging on the door the same door every day at the same time right and there's something about kind of the trappedness you know of this kind of very complicated interweaved net that you almost can't escape and the returning to a series of instances that yes they all change and and yet they they each instance brings with it the memory of the previous one I guess um so I think that was also why this form felt like particularly important in terms of kind of exploring that that subject matter um so yeah were there any um were there any practical obstacles that you encountered well I mean I imagine that there, there are um I wondered if you could in terms of what they were in terms um, of rising the sestina this particular sestina or in general in general really um yeah because I, I personally find them so difficult yeah i think um sestinas are kind of um really hard to revise <laughs> because once you have those six kind of um words that you're going to keep coming back to um it's almost i mean it's almost impossible so it kind of um the one that really took me a long time um was uh um born in the year of the ball um and that one right. this was actually um the first sestina i ever wrote <laughs> um so yeah. so so it really it did need some revision us all to shame <laughs> sorry what did you say <laughs> oh. i said you're putting us all to shame no not at all i mean i think um i think the first stanza of each sestina you know sometimes for me comes out kind of quite um naturally and then you're like oh my god i have to write six more stanzas with the same end words now what um, right, so you know when you write that first stanza that you're gonna do a sestina um sort of there and then or i think i think um i always try and find a form um that kind of really I feel like um forms have emotional language you know it's not just a carrier um so I think it's really important that um the subject matter either either there is tension between the subject matter and the form so kind of productively sometimes you can have like a very rigid form for something that's very lyrical um but I also think you know um there is its own kind of emotional weight so thinking almost like about sonnets you have this possibility of kind of how the rhyme gives you that return the volta gives you that transformation and so there's almost kind of like a tension before you even come to the words themselves um so i don't think it's necessarily that i know that the first with the first stanza i know it's going to be a sestina um but um i think elegy for the howler monkeys i did really want to try and explore using that form um to deal with this subject matter because i felt kind of um it would be a way in um and i also think sometimes kind of giving yourself these um rigid rules um allows you to kind of talk about more difficult things you can kind of um 
put your mind um, into trying to solve the puzzle. And sometimes strange things happen also when you have to break the line in a particular moment. Um, it kind of enables um, things that you would never have expected to come out, I guess. One of the things that I found really helped to come across as very sort of natural repetition was using narrative quite a lot mm. in the Sestinas. Was that a conscious choice? Is that something you picked up on that that it became almost a storytelling practice in the Sestina? I mean, I think there's an element of that in your other poems as well. Mm. Um, as someone who's not able to like write narrative to save my <laughs> life. <laughs> um, I wondered if that was what I was missing in a, in, in my Sestinas yeah. because it really does sort of um, give you that scope to work with where then suddenly the um, the repetition doesn't feel too similar. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting um, about narrative. I mean, I guess when thinking about storytelling, we do keep going back to these moments of, of repetition, right? Almost as anchors for the story, but also to, you know, thinking about ancient oral practices to kind of um, communicate to a listener to kind of give them give them things to hold on to. Um, so I hadn't thought about narrative, but now that you say it, I really, um, yeah, I really see that um, in these um and I think I was also kind of interested in uh, the way repetition is important to make sure a story survives in context of um, actually a lot of, you know, in, in context of persecution or genocide where so much has been destroyed. Sometimes it feels like the stories are the only thing, you know, the only thing to hold on to. And so there is a kind of urgency in the telling, um, which comes because so much has been lost, basically. Um, and I think there, there is a real interest throughout the whole of it to kind of um, uncover some of the violences um, that, you know, that have happened and some of the voices that, that kind of have been lost. Um, On that note, I wonder if we could move to the section as long as paper lasts. Um, sure. Feels fitting. Um, I, I wonder if you had a preference between reading Polish Honey Cake or Why Did We Kill Jesus? Because I really liked both those poems. Oh, um... But they're both relatively long and I don't want to... Yeah, which would you prefer? Yeah. I mean, I know you just... you. Well, we mentioned Why Did We Kill Jesus already, so maybe we should yeah. do that one. You know what, this is exciting because I've actually never read this out loud. So <laughs> so this okay. is the right one for this. Why did we... Ooh, I can't speak. Why Did We Kill Jesus? I am six and it is Christmas morning. We go to church before we open presents, incense still burning from my father's meditation, parley words mingling with ash at Buddha's feet, carved with swastikas. Su means good, asti it is in Sanskrit chant. No, the Jews killed Jesus, chants the priest on a pink December morning. Beyond stained windows, I see swastikas patterned in the clouds, my present haunted. In the chapel, I dip fingers in ash, forge sculptures of wax while others pray and father photographs sarcophagi. Explains father, the New Testament reinterprets the old, a chant then appropriated by Rome, making ash of other communities. In the morning, I cry, why did we kill Jesus? Our presence suddenly condemned. I pass a swastika on a bathroom door. I trace the swastika as kids discuss their trips to Auschwitz. Father is beaten in the streets. 
We wake for pujas, present open palms and petals, a Tibetan monk chants by the tanka in the corner as morning rises on the Himalayas in a cloud of ash. At grandmother's funeral, we scatter ash, whisper of her escape from swastikas, pretending she was Catholic. Each morning, how she found safety in Jesus. Now father describes himself a fan of Jesus. He chants an origin story. In Jesus's iconography, present are various pagan images which present unstable beginnings, sometimes out of ash and fire, a phoenix reincarnated. Father chants for reincarnation and I listen. The swastika in tantric texts signaling the aniconic father May I be free from suffering this morning. I wake to the chant of morning, present in blue tit and heron call, father in lotus, facing the ash and swastika. One of the first questions I had about this poem, which, because even as we're talking, you know, I can hear myself at least hedging at times because the subject matter is obviously very heavy. Mm. Um, why was it so important for you to name the thing, as it were, especially the swastika? Um, why was it important to name the swastika or name? Yeah, because it, um, it's quite an easy thing to um, talk about without really talking about, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, something about, you know, naming the evil itself is really powerful, but not necessarily a given in poetry. I wondered if it was, might not have even been a decision for you. It might have been obviously what you wanted to do. Um, no, I think, I mean, um, so I grew up with a very, in a very kind of um, multi-religious household, <laughs> um, as I'm sure you can tell from reading this book. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, partly this book is, and it goes back to your first questions, interested in the appropriation of symbols. Um, and so thinking about swastika as the kind of, um, you know, a symbol before it was appropriated by the Nazis, um, okay. that is about peace, you know, and, and the, Sanskrit, the Sanskrit from where swastika comes from. Um, I'm, I was also thinking about kind of um, how symbols can come to mean such different things in different contexts um so that was one thing another thing was um kind of really interested in how these difficult words <laughs> what happens when we hear them again and again and again so i think in in another of the poems pilgrim's bauxite is the is the a word that keeps coming back um and i guess partly in terms of kind of the difficulty of the subject matter um it's also kind of a question, a question to the reader of like, what does it, how does it feel to be confronted with, with that, you know, um, what does it mean for it to come again and again and again, for it to be kind of brought out into the open rather than hidden? Um, I think that this collection is interested in visibility and invisibility in different ways um, and how we navigate those things and what are the ways in which we hide or don't hide and how hiding can can enable in some contexts of surviving and in other contexts an erasure. And so in hiding, which maybe saves your life, you also destroy something that can't be recovered. And so I think that the kind of repetition through the language was also a way of making and unmaking um, and a questioning of can we come out of those things? You know, I think in terms of your first question with uh, about kind of anti-Semitism, um, 
so much still remains you know we like to think that um so much has changed <laughs> but actually um you know it may be obscure and it may not be so kind of out in the open or so visible um but if you know where, where to look and if you're also one of the people um against whom that kind of violence and hate um is is gestured towards it can be pervasive and every day um so i think that was also um something that i was really kind of thinking about when i when i um repeated that word so often um yeah there's an interesting um I had two things to say there. One was, which I'll start with before I forget it, there's an interesting reversal going on with I trace the swastika as kids discuss their trips to Auschwitz, just in terms of what is being made visible, who is making it visible, the idea that this kind of, this tourism of suffering, really, which, like, I mean, it really feels like almost a sort of holiday to Auschwitz being mentioned there and to have to have um to have your trauma like sort of not even unearthed but made visible in that way must be really really jarring um so it is it is an interesting reversal there on the reader i think having the sort of quick follow-on from the swastika Mm. to the trips to auschwitz um and i guess that's sorry no, I mean, I was going to say that I think um, that was actually, you know, that was something that I was really interested in. Is what, what does it mean when um, there are these kind of um, tourist moments to museums that are meant to be memorials to kind of terrible things that have happened? Um, and what is the way in which we engage with the past in a kind of like very voyeuristic, superficial way? And what are the ways mm. in which we engage with the past in much more meaningful ways? Yeah, and also... Um, and again, this is just sort of my experience in the UK. Um, when we memorialize the past, I mean, that, especially in November, I guess, um, so much emphasis on the poppy and, you know, yeah, sort of exactly. soldiers dying in yeah. World War One and Two. We don't really talk about the Holocaust in the same way. We don't have mm-hmm. that same kind of, you know, I mean, the country stops for the poppy. Um which, and the complete inequality there is kind of startling. Um, Yeah, and I mean, I think um, I have kind of quite complicated feelings about this because I also think that the Holocaust has, um, there is a kind of um, uh, maybe uh, big uh, kind of memory around the Holocaust much more than a lot of other genocides. Um, And so I think that there are... um, historic reasons for that also and I think um kind of partly when I when I the kind of next poem in the collection those who view images to Nazi atrocities become witnesses to their crimes that one is also about kind of which which genocides are remembered and which are not and why um so I think that you know um I definitely agree with you that um the holocaust was not that long ago and um the way that we are taught it in schools is kind of very strange um and there's definitely a kind of a a big question now with like all the survivors you know many of them now have died i think we're right now in that moment and what do we do with memory um but also kind of question of um which memory is worth saving and why um and i think that is kind of a very complicated political question also yeah, and it goes back to what you're saying about anti-Semitism being so pervasive, but sort of like every layer of society. 
um, in the UK where it, you know, it's sort of almost underpinning our history education, which is really frightening. Yeah, exactly. Just, just by its, just by its, um, sheer avoidance and like lackluster mm -hmm. effort to engage, I guess it's not, yeah. you know, um, but yeah, you know, that is a form of racism and exclusion that, I mean, yeah, the UK education system seems to do fuck all about. <laughs> ah. um, I'm getting a bit off track there. Sorry. <laughs> no, of course. This goes back to being, you know, relatively new thing for me and not. No, it's um, wonderful. Sometimes I lose the lose the thread and the structure. No, it's just so nice. I end up just saying things that are not questions, which is not helping anyone. <laughs> um, I do find it interesting in the collection that you're weaving together multiple kinds of trauma, mm -hmm. and the one, like almost, I mean, it's almost reductive to say, to say a number of kinds, but certainly there's the sort of very personal trauma of assault at the beginning um and then you've got um the trauma of auschwitz and then also it comes up to the present day and um covid and the pandemic mm. um which is not to put any of those things on any kind of footing with one another but i thought it was interesting that you included all these kinds of trauma and mm. so it becomes a collection about memory rather than the memory of one specific event was yeah. that a, i take it that was a conscious choice was it a difficult one was it um yeah how did you come to decide that was how you wanted the collection to be shaped yeah i mean it's a good question i think a lot of these um poems were actually written between like march to um june you know they were written a short period of time in 2020 so um the okay. pandemic was very kind of, you know, um, obviously a really big part of that process. And I think a very particular energy, I um, I don't know whether you were in the UK in March, 2020, um, but there was just this extraordinary flourishing of spring. And at the same time, like very, very beautiful. Um, and right. at the same time, the kind of massive weight of tragedy. And I think that created, um, at least in me, this kind of all these existential questions about where are we going and what are we doing? And so certain poems really came out of that feeling, like um, Seeking Origins, for instance. Um, and I think um, in terms of the kind of different kinds of trauma, I this book is really interested in how how everything is kind of interlinked um, specifically thinking around capitalism and the plundering of the land and the ways um, humans are violent towards each other. And I think I was really interested in kind of destructiveness, our own destructiveness um, and really right. turning a mirror towards ourselves, which is partly why there's all this stuff around spectatorship and complicity um, of kind of what are, we, what are, how are we able to kind of be destructive towards each other and, that kind of is the reason for this symbol of the boar, which is this very ambivalent figure in the collection because boars are these kind of ferocious creatures um, that cause havoc and destroy a lot of stuff. Um, but they are also not predators. You know, they're also capable of kind of care and generosity. And so I guess a central question is, you know, to what extent are we like the boar capable of kind of tearing the entire place apart, but also, care, you know, capable of other things. And 
you know, love song for the tightrope walkers is really about um, kind of actually the beautiful community connections that were um, created and sustained during kind of the first months of the pandemic where people were checking up on each other and looking after each other. Um, so I guess, you know, um, in terms of structuring the book, my question at that moment was really, you know, given the history of this violent world um, and, you know, it's continued violence, there's all the ways in which um, we are constituted because of because of what has happened. How do we move on from this, you know, this given this world we have inherited and, and what can we do to find intimacy and connection and, you know, something um, given everything that has happened. Um, so that's really the reason why all these things are kind of drawn together. But definitely in my mind, they're kind of all interconnected in terms of, sure. um, you know, uh, the complicated ways in which this world is kind of structured and, and pulled together. Yeah. Um, on the topic of finding sort of intimacy and empathy amidst the weight of tragedy, I wondered if you'd read The Night Does Not Discriminate. Sure. Of course. The Night Does Not Discriminate. Empty hotels in Tel Aviv are overrun by wild boars, their snouts scuffling the last of days, tusks piercing the April sky. I Skype you in the middle of the night. Again, we discuss how pigs get drunk, seeking fermented apples in Hawthorne woods how we share 98% of our DNA. When lockdown was announced, I bought wine, then rice. The government announced increases in alcohol consumption, empty shelves. I bore through hours more cheap Rioja, Heineken cans, share memes, obsess over tweets and cleaning products, pierce my earlobes, rearrange my Pink Floyd CDs, seek to shift the dust monotony of days, count sirens in the night. Can you hear the birds? Swallows shedding sleep as night fades to laburnum and cherry blossom. You announce today is the first day of Ramadan and together we seek out sacred myths. How Meliega hunts the giant boar, Gibral's revelation to Muhammad, the angel's piercing gaze, a promise of mossy ground for us all to share. You say this virus is punishment for our not sharing, our always taking and wanting and wanting, but the night does not discriminate or no pandemic. The stars pierce equally the moth and butterfly, the nurse who announces, I cannot save your father and I'm so sorry, the boars that leave their hungry young while they seek food. Outside, green flourishing, another spring seeking breath. I wish I could kiss you. Instead, reckless sharing of false information, callousness. You explain the boar saves Osiris, God's Freya, his sister Freya, like the night which won't discriminate. And in the purple, we announce a commitment to find a way through difference, to pierce the pernicious opinions we have of one another, pierce this distance and risk the price of tenderness. I seek it like a firefly to sunlight, as petals bloom, announcing the possibility of something more, perhaps the sharing of clean water, of flower-scented air, knowing the night which won't discriminate will protect the wild boar, the nest. It will announce the footfall of hunter, pierce danger. We will seek softness and nuzzling, and the boar will watch rain share its wetness, the small palms of night. 
I don't have a question for this point, but just hearing you read, I love the line, a promise of mossy, of mossy ground for us all to share. Mm. I did have a um, very silly question just about <laughs> the about the poem, though. Um, favorite Pink Floyd album? Oh, you know what? It's it's a bit difficult. I feel like I can't answer that question because I'll get in trouble with my siblings. <laughs> <laughs> just in case they listen but I think we all fight over we'll fight over it <laughs> yeah my brother actually introduced me to Pink Floyd so I really I yeah. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for coming on I, it was really lovely to um, hear your work out loud um, no thank you so much for what asking a terrible me. what a terrible thank you that was so that was so lame <laughs> It was really nice to talk to you and it was really nice of you to bear with questions about really difficult subjects. It was a real privilege to go through the poems with you. So thank no, you. thank you, Andrew. Thank you for asking me. It's been really nice to just chat to you.